This is the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast, brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Now please welcome your host, Ed McKnight. Hello and welcome along to the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast. I am your host, Ed McKnight, and today down the line we are talking with Sam Ray Jones, who is the founder of Little Yellow Bird, an ethically sourced organic retailer of uniforms and clothing. Sam, how are you doing today? Uh, Good, thanks. Great to be on the show. Fantastic. And Sam, you've got such an interesting background. Like, I just uh, launched Skype about 20 minutes ago and we started chatting before we started recording. Um, And I didn't take you for a military girl, but that's exactly what your background is. Have I got that right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, I joined up when I was 18 and I got funded through university. And then I was, yeah, logistics officer for a, a few years before I started this. I'm going to ask you a kind of dumb question, but what does the logistics officer even do? A range of things, uh, but most specifically, I was mainly working in supply chain management. And so my job was mostly around coordinating parts for the different aircraft fleets. So making sure we had enough parts for the maintainers to keep the aircraft um, flying, basically. So... You would be sourcing ammunition to for like our fighter jets or something. Does New Zealand even have <laughs> fighter jets? Please yeah, say no, yes. No, not quite. So we oh. don't have a strike force. Um, no, I was mainly working in the maritime fleet. Mm-hmm. So that does a lot of like search and rescue surveillance, um, disaster relief also, you know, surveying areas after hurricane or something like that. So that's sort of mainly... Um, what I was doing, as well as uh, logistics officers will tend to coordinate personnel and, um, you know, food and equipment for your various exercises or activities. Nice. I can remember all of the ads, uh, especially when I was 17, when uh, the military and the Navy and the Army, they're uh, advertising for, for young people to come and join the force. And they've got all these ads that make it out, look out look like or make out to be that it's going to be really, really cool. Is it like the ads? Does, does, the, does the actual day-to-day live uh-huh. up to it? Oh, you know, nothing's ever exactly like the ads, but I really enjoyed my time. Uh, I did a total of six years, uh, and I had some amazing opportunities. I got a lot of experience from a really young age. Mm -hmm. Um, It's definitely days that it's like those ads, but, you know, like all jobs, there's a lot of, you know, admin and desk work that goes on behind the scenes as well. So there's a bit of both. Oh, I, can, I can imagine because does the, the New Zealand military doesn't actually engage a, in action. It's more support and relief. Is that correct? Yeah, mostly. So we do a lot of um, disaster relief and, you know, work in rebuilding communities post-conflict and that sort of thing is probably where our main role is. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And then after you left after those six years, three years later, uh, I didn't mention this in the intro, but you, you were crowned uh, just last year the Young New Zealand Innovator of the Year. So what what, what happens in those three years in between? Uh, so I left not knowing what I really wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to be involved in something that had real meaning. And I guess I kind of fell across this idea of sustainable uniforms partially because I couldn't find any work where when I left um, to get a corporate role having just always been supplied with a uniform that I had no choice over mm-hmm. so it was kind of that that was like a crucial I guess event in my life that 
I realized that there was a gap in the market and so started working on this idea and I was at, I'd gone back to university to do my master's Mm -hmm. and there was a business competition that I saw. I was like, submit an idea, you can win part of $85,000 and I was like, well, that sounds like fun. Was that at Auckland University? Canterbury University. Oh, okay. And I was like, I'd really like to win $85,000, that would be nice. Um, And so submitted my idea and we only won $2,000 from that competition. But, um, you know, that was kind of the first, that was the start of it. And with that money, I went over to India and uh, started working in uh, a factory over there, really understanding um, their challenges and what, what it means to be a garment worker in a developing country. And so with those connections, yeah, I was able to trace our entire supply chain right back to source. So we know from which farming co-ops our raw materials come from and just, yeah, I was able to expand on, I guess, my supply chain knowledge from the uh-huh. military. I was able to use that um, in a fashion context. So I really understood the whole supply chain um, right from the beginning. So that was like, I guess, my strength. I didn't have a huge fashion background, uh-huh. um, but I understood how the supplier side of it worked. Um, and that was how we grew the business. Fascinating. And the, the one of the first things you said in that was that you were looking to move out of the military to get into a corporate job. You didn't expect to get into entrepreneurship. What was the kind of thinking behind um, initially going, going corporate? Well, to be honest, I thought that I wanted to be a project manager because that was, you know, a lot of what I did in the military and with logistics. Like a construction and, project manager? Uh, yeah, that was actually, I did uh, I did do some consulting in that area for a little while um, as the business was starting up, but it wasn't for me. I didn't enjoy it. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of just fell into this... Um, yeah, this entrepreneurial world, and I got to the point where I kind of either had to give it up or go all in, um, and yeah, a few things lined up, and yeah, just went for it, and yeah, so far it's been paying off. Oh, nice. So you won $2,000 at this uh, Canterbury University uh, business competition, and you go off to India. What, what did you find in India? Like, what, what was it like? Give us an insight into that. Uh, it was really fascinating. Uh, I discovered some interesting things. Uh, the initial factory we were working with were doing things in, I guess, from my perspective, quite an inefficient way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was able to kind of share some of my military knowledge or skills, just in terms of like how they were stock taking, like counting, storing things, um, which was all stuff that I didn't even really realize that I knew. But I just did because mm-hmm. of what I'd been doing for the last few years. Um, but I learned heaps about, like, you know, how much waste goes on in the fashion industry. And, you know, I learned a lot of really, like, troubling things, you know, about some of the background that some of these people had, or, you know, hardships that these people had faced. Um, you know, this was a really great factory, but most of them had come from factories where they didn't have as good conditions or, you know, they were forced into working ridiculous overtime, those kind of scenarios. So it was really kind of just, um, yeah, it was just coming, um, what's the word I'm searching for? Just being like having everything like right there and understanding 
all the realities. Yeah, um, I imagine it brings a lot of clarity to, especially to what you're what you're looking to do when you can see the people making it. Yeah, yeah, because I think people forget that you know you get a five dollar t shirt or something, and we just think of it as like a bargain. And I know I used to think of it mm-hmm. like that, um, but actually, there's people that have to be paid wages to make that, and that product has come from somewhere. Uh, and once you understand how much steps go into making one T-shirt and how complicated it is, you, you just can't justify a five-dollar T-shirt after that because you know that those people wouldn't have been paid well. Mm-hmm. Because when you say you mentioned that some of them were going through uh, ridiculous overtime, how many hours are we talking? You know, it's it's pretty typical in the fashion industry for workers to be doing you know sixteen or so hours. Um, you know, and people live in dormitory style accommodation at factory because they're working, you know, six or seven days a week to send money back to their families that, you know, might live rurally. And, you know, that is the reality for a lot of garment workers. So, you know, we don't, we don't work with factories that follow those um, kind of work practices, but it's definitely out there and that's the norm. Um, so we're always looking for good suppliers that follow fair trade guidelines that, you know, don't work more than six days a week. Um, you know, it's eight hour days with, you know, decent lunch breaks and, you know, people are paid for the work that they do. Mm-hmm. Well, 16 hour days, that's like 6am to 10pm. And and you said six, six day minimum for fair trade. So I imagine that some of these kind of more strictly commercial factories if I can call them that you know seven days a week going 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. that's that's bloody groundhog day that's what that is yeah yeah can you like that and so um little yellow bird you're only working with um with I guess what would call ethical factories and is that the only sustainable element behind it no it's also the raw materials so I mentioned before we can trace our raw materials so we're using organic rain-fed cotton so that means that it's been grown without the use of pesticides or insecticides and our cotton's really unique in the sense that we don't rely on irrigation to to grow it Mm -hmm. so um you know although cotton is you know a natural fiber it's still important to remember that it's hugely uh resource intensive and water is one of the, those resources so conventional cotton so just your standard cotton it takes thousands of liters of water to to make mm-hmm. a kilogram of cotton uh, and that's generally because farmland that's not ideal for growing cotton all year round is being used mm-hmm. because there's a value in that commodity for, for that community um, but it means that it's grown at the expense of you know Um, local waterways because they just get completely drained to make cotton grow all year round which is not is not designed to do that in those areas so we source cotton from areas where they just do one crop per year and it's timed with the rainy season so cotton needs um needs to be really hot and it also needs uh, moisture to grow Mm -hmm. um so that's how our cotton is growing so it's it's pretty much as sustainable as you can get. Um, so no no chemicals and no additional water inputs. Mm-hmm. And does that also, when there aren't chemicals used in the process of growing this cotton, does that mean 
that it's better for us as consumers? Oh, yeah, totally, totally. Definitely better for us, but just really also better for the communities where the cotton is grown. Mm-hmm. That's probably the, the number one. And it just means that the, the total global use of pesticides is reduced as well. Mm-hmm. So cotton uses, you know, majority of the world's, you know, just a disproportionate amount of the world's pesticides. Um, and it's not really necessary. Um, you know, pesticides will increase uh, a yield for a cotton crop, but it can't do that forever. Mm-hmm. So what, what you might get and why farmers have, you know, been easily convinced that this is the best form of farming is because, yeah, the first season you might get a better crop, but season after season, it's just not sustainable because the land can't sustain that. Um, and over time, uh, you know, farmers are spending more money on these pesticides, they're getting into debt, and then eventually the crops don't come through. And that's actually part of the reason why there's been really significant farmer suicides in India uh, in the cotton-growing cotton, cotton growing communities. So organic is, you know, a really great alternative, and it, and it does take a long time. So the co-ops where we source our cotton from have been working for 20 years getting farmers to go back to organic cotton growing methods. And it takes a really long time for people to recognise that that's a really good model. But obviously, they've been getting more and more farmers to convert uh, and the farmers are getting a premium price for their product because mm-hmm. organic is is considered more luxury than mm-hmm. conventionally grown. Um, and so the farmers end up getting more money. Uh, it's better for the environment. Uh, it's better for consumers. Uh, just ends up being, yeah, in my opinion, a better way to 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 make clothes. Yeah, and to and to source it as well. It ends up with a better a better product for the consumer. Just out of interest, what's the price differential for a farmer between um, producing cotton uh, through? Uh, what I'm going to call the usual means, but with pesticides um, and the difference between that and uh, organic cotton. Is it is it like twice the price or between three times the price? Uh, I don't know exactly like the exact numbers, mm-hmm. but I know it's, they definitely get a, a better rate for organic cotton. And then our cotton is also um, from fair trade co-ops, so then they get fair trade premium on top of that as well. Um, but they're not spending extra money on those pesticides and chemicals. So that's a really good question. I don't know. I couldn't. I couldn't say is it double or triple. Um, that I know they get. They get a, a better rate for it. It makes you almost. It kind of begs the question. Why? Why aren't more people growing organic cotton? You know, you've got decreased costs. You've got increased revenue. You know, it, it kind of seems like a no-brainer unless it's kind of because they don't know about it. Well, yeah, it's pretty, it's not just that simple, I guess. Um, so we pay more for our organic cotton, right? Mm-hmm. So the farmers make more money, but businesses can buy conventionally grown cotton much cheaper than what they can buy conventionally grown cotton. So for like a big business, there's still a financial incentive for them to buy conventionally grown cotton because mm-hmm. it's cheaper and they're making it, making their clothing on such a mass scale mm-hmm. that they actually make a lot more money by buying conventionally grown cotton. 
I see. I see as well. And I guess it also comes back down to the demand for or- organic cotton. Like it's it's not an unlimited demand. Um, there, there are only so many people wanting to buy it so that they can turn it into clothes. Whereas if you've got, yeah, it, it, there are almost infinite numbers of farmers and big uh, Walmarts and big branch uh, retailers that will buy conventionally grown cotton. Oh, you can't hear me. Oh, yeah, it's just come back now. But I missed whatever you said at the end. Oh, I assure you it was gold. <laughs> Let me just note down the time so that I can um, I can cut that out. Basically, what I was saying is that there's um, there is relatively unlimited demand for conventionally grown cotton because you've got massive uh, chains like Walmart and Farmers and the Warehouse who are willing to buy that sort of cotton because they can f- they can flog it off for uh, for inflated profit margins essentially. Yeah, I mean, again, it's still not that simple because, like, H&M, so they're one of the big world's biggest retailers, are also one of the biggest purchasers of organic cotton. So they do use it, but the thing with H&M is that they don't exclusively use it. Okay. And they're still, um, they're still using a lot of non-organic cotton, and they're still encouraging that, um, that fast fashion model. They're still... Mm-hmm. I guess that, you know, some people could say that they're using, you know, they've got their ethical line or their organic cotton line to entice people into their store or predominantly young women into their store. Um, And then they still sell them a whole bunch of, and they might be making a loss on some of those organic cotton products to, you know, get these people in their store. And then they're still encouraging them to buy, you know, 10 items that they might wear once or twice and Mm -hmm. then throw away. So, yeah, it's, it's super complicated. That's what I've definitely been learning as I learn more about the fashion industry is that there's actually not just one simple solution or simple answer. It's not like, oh, yeah, why does everyone just use organic cotton? Well, you know, it's being able to get a good source for that and know why and, um, you know, even if you're using it, like, what does that mean? And there's just all these, like, layers of... Um, complication and just even understanding all the different terms or you know organic cotton can be organic but it can be um, made with irrigated water mm-hmm. so it's like another another element or another step and it's just all these different um, these factors that you've got to consider and I guess the other major factor that one would have to consider with the um solely ethically grown uh, organic cotton is that you'd mentioned that it can only be grown in hot temperatures so I imagine and you said it can only be done uh, once a year so there's a seasonal element to when you can source it yeah I mean it grows best in those climates um, and where we are uh, growing it we do one crop per year mm-hmm. um, there may be other climates or weather patterns where they do it differently I'm not sure um, but that's yeah that's how how we're growing ours and so yeah our farmers are really actually vulnerable to changes in weather patterns and so last year we had really erratic um, weather we had it was too dry at one point and then it was too wet and so a large amount of the crops actually did end up having uh, you know some sort of bug mm-hmm. and so some of their crops uh, you know were destroyed and so then you've got those you know that I guess ethical dilemma or you know should they use should they use a chemical or a pesticide to eradicate that particular bug? But then, then they lose their organic certifications. And so 
you know, once you once you put on a chemical onto that crop, then it's two years before they can sell it again as organic, and you know, so it's all these really challenging scenarios. Um, that often it's not so black and white as this is the best answer. Mm-hmm. And um, so, when you're in that situation and you've got, say, you've got your organic cotton suppliers, um, and then it, they have a bad season and there's inclement weather, and that means that their their crop isn't either isn't going to be organic or isn't going to be there. What do you what do you have to do in that case as as the person sourcing the cotton and using it? So you've got to find another farm, but that farm might already be spoken for. What do you do in that situation? Well, I guess this doesn't affect us. It's something that we're really aware of and um, working working towards more. But because we're still such a small customer, mm-hmm. there's you know I mentioned before that the that particular co-op has been working for twenty years. So there's actually quite a few in that particular co-op. There's five thousand farmers, and in the the sister co-op, there's about twenty thousand. Mm-hmm. So for us, it, it means that the price will go up because there's less stock available mm-hmm. but but we don't use so much stock that it means that we would completely use it all and there wouldn't be any available so it just does make it makes the price point um higher and so some farmers end up really benefiting mm-hmm. but then other farmers don't and but that's why it's um the, the farmers are protected and to a certain extent by being part of that co-op because you know some farmers don't have a good season and some do so there's a bit you know, there's a bit more reserves and um, finance available to help farmers get through those more lumpy um, supply problems. Uh, if we were one of the bigger customers, so there are a few, and you know, we know who, who those customers are, um, they might have to have that just because they're using such big quantities. That might be a decision that they would they would maybe make to source from somewhere else that I would I would imagine they'd probably source from a different country if they had to add in additional stocks um, we're still a relatively small customer so and often the, the price might not be affected this season because a lot of the um, product is still available from last year Mm-hmm. And just for anybody at home um, wondering w- what a co-op is, tip- basically it's exactly the, the uh, structure that Fonterra has where you've got a whole heap of farmers who then come together and create this company that they can then go uh, sell and market the cotton for you. And so they they join together and in this case it sounds like they've got some benefits and protections against um, bad weather. Have a come yeah. that, right? Yeah, pretty much. So they're, they're in producer groups. And for cotton, it's really, um, I guess, important that they all are kind of on the same page because actually, like, if, you know, and these are, I'm talking about really small farms here. So most of them are, you know, two, three, four, maybe five acres. And so they're all bordering each other. And if one guy's putting a whole bunch of chemicals on his crop, it's going to go into neighbouring farms. So it's the whole area that's actually organic and they've like they've continued to spread out over time um but yeah they they run a number of um initiatives so they've got you know schools and hospitals and different programs that they have as a a collective if you're part of the co-op um jointly decided that this would be a good project to spend some of our premiums on and, and that's kind of they they work together because they're all such small farms. Um, there's a lot of efficiencies and economies of scale they can get if they work together. 
Oh, fantastic. Actually, the reason I asked the, um, the question about supply chain and what happens uh, in, in um, bad weather is because I was at an event where Nadia Lim was speaking and she said the most interesting thing that because my food bank has scaled to uh, su- such a large company now that they're producing so many different meals that if there's bad weather down say, uh, where's that place where they make carrots in New Zealand? Is it like Ohapu or something? I'm not sure. Oh, I, I was thinking of the place with the big carrot. But say that there's a really bad um, season for carrots and they all get wiped out. Because they, uh, my food bag plans about six months in advance, they have to get all of their sourcing right. And then if those carrots got knocked out, they've got a contingency plan for what are we going to feed everybody if um, those carrots get knocked out at that specific time. And so there's yeah. a whole complex web of agreements in place to make mm. sure that they're always going to be able to source uh, the combination of ingredients they're going to need in order to feed whatever percentage of the country it is. It's a, it's a fascinating supply uh, supply chain problem that I was I was kind of you don't really think about these things when you no. ordering right. But and that's what's fascinating, right? Because I think about everything that I buy now, and it's like, how did this get here? Like, what thought has gone into getting this? Because yeah, even an order of a hundred t-shirts, there's so many little things that that go into actually getting those hundred t-shirts made. Um, but it's it's literally everything that we buy. You know, where did these headphones come from? You know, um, where did they come from? <laughs> these exactly. Ones are but you know, I want to buy a pair of sunglasses. Um, I've lost mine, and I'm in this like real dilemma um and i've actually got my eye on here from recycled boutique um that i saw the other day because i actually you know now that i know all the stuff i actually can't justify just going out and buying a pair of sunglasses that i don't know where they've been made um and so it kind of really ruins like any just like well not ruins it's a good thing but it just means you know you're much more con- or i am much more conscious about you know everything where my food comes from you know if I buy sheets, you know, homewares, you know, I seem not, not buying much, to be honest. Yeah, well, even look at your example of the sunglasses you just talked about from Recycle Boutique. Um, they, th- those types of consignment companies where they're selling on somebody's behalf because they're, they're secondhand has the most interesting supply chain. I've got a, I've got a, I, I work in the digital space. Um, uh, listeners who have been listening for a, for a while probably know that. Um, and one of my clients is a, is a consignment retailer. And we went in and looked at their supply chain of how does this piece of clothing get from my walk into the store, I put it on the table or whatever, you take it away, you take it to your warehouse, you process it, you price it, you discard it if you, um, if you uh, if it's not going to be sold in store, but you get it in, and then you've got it discounted, and then all of these different things. But there's a, even before that, there's a whole supply chain of getting those sunglasses made, put it mm. out into the market, oh, sold sorry. at Sunglasses Hut, and then they come back in and go through another supply, another piece of the supply chain. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah, and then I was just watching a documentary on the weekend actually about what happens to the clothes after they've gone through that supply chain at the second-hand store. And this particular one was really interesting because I know about, you know, clothing going offshore. Yeah. But this particular documentary was super fascinating because um, these, you know, container load of old clothes from a Western country arrive and the first thing that they do is they cut at the border every single item because they're being on sold to a company that will remake them into fabric but 
the person that the end consumer of this waste clothes doesn't want to risk anyone stealing any of his workers stealing the any clothes. of the clothes so they get cut at the border so that people can't steal them and this documentary is really fascinating because there's all these um, Indian women cutting up these clothes and basically what they have come to the conclusion of is that we must not have water in the west because we don't bother washing our clothes they can what they thought of is that there's not enough water here, so we just buy clothes because it takes less water, which isn't actually true. But um, that's what that's what they're, they're thinking. Because that's otherwise, why would why would we send all these perfectly good clothes? They don't understand. And it's you know, it's, I think it's also a bit of a, a joke to them. But like that's what they're thinking. They must think that that is the most bizarre uh, kind of like, why am I cutting up these clothes? Um, I thought you were going to say that they're cutting them up because uh, of tariffs, um, you know, so that like if they can't import goods that they can um, just sell on straight away, that they had to destroy them in order so that they could be... Um, so that it could be remade and, and dodge a tariff. It reminds me a little bit of, did you, did, have you ever watched those like border patrol shows? Mm, I yeah. remember somebody brought, uh, this is like 12 years ago when I, when I was like, I don't even know how old I was when I was 12, 12 years ago, like 13 and watching those shows on TV. And I remember somebody bought it like a hundred pairs of, of shoes and they expected and border patrol police or whatever thought, oh, okay, we've got to destroy some of these shoes because they could be on sold as, as fakes. They were, they were, they were fake. Um, they were, they were like fake designer shoes. Uh, so they, they were worried that they could be on sold as real rather. Uh, so they drilled a hole into, into every second shoe so that they couldn't be on sold. Mm-hmm. And it just it kind of kind of reminds me of exactly that, but the incentives are also interesting in that situation about we're going to destroy this product uh, in order to make sure that um, our employees don't do anything dodgy. Mm-hmm. It reminds yeah. me of I've just read um, Diane Foreman's book in the arena. She's like yeah. the ex ice cream queen of New Zealand, and she's told this fascinating story of she's got all of these franchisees that have their own ice cream shops. But what was happening was that the um, the franchisees would take cash payment for the ice cream and then not register it. So then, so she was realizing that she wasn't getting some of this commission um, or any of her royalties on certain types of ice cream. So she did a campaign that said, if you don't get your receipt for the ice cream, then it's free. Yeah, yeah. I just thought I think little things like that that when you look you think about it, you're like that doesn't really make any sense but then yeah. as soon as you get the kind of reasoning behind it you're like oh, okay yeah it makes sense it's a little bit of a paradox yeah that was one of the first books I read when I started getting into entrepreneurship and I remember reading that same bit and being like that's just genius it's smart <laughs> eh? and you're like you can just imagine the look on some of the, those franchisees faces being like damn she found yeah. this out but the thing is, is that they'll, they'll find another way, right? Um, they always will. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it's it's really challenging um, and disappointing when you're also trying to, you know, do a good thing. But, yeah, sometimes that happens and, yeah. Mm. One thing I love about your model, Sam, that we haven't even brought up yet is that you're selling um, – uh, in bulk kind of uniforms so, you're, so you've got a whole heap of businesses that are continuously buying from you because you're supplying their uniforms and I just think it is the most genius model for how you're going to take this um, t- take sustainable clothing and kind of sell it a little bit more at scale rather than trying to sell one t-shirt at a time 
Yeah, so basically the concept was always because, and I guess because I was, like I said, I wasn't into fashion. Like I didn't, I didn't start this because I wanted to have a fashion business. Mm-hmm. I started this because I really believe that the model of the fashion industry is wrong and we can do it a whole lot more sustainably. But what we've discovered is that, yeah, you're right, we can get a whole lot of, um, you know, economies of scale through these companies that are buying these bigger orders. And so it means that we can actually supply, you know, you can still go onto our website and you can buy an organic cotton T-shirt and Mm -hmm. we currently retail those at $35 a T-shirt. So, which is more expensive than what, you know, a business would be paying if they're buying a couple of hundred, but it's much cheaper than what you'd probably be able to buy an organic T-shirt from any other ethical kind of, I guess, label. Um, depending, you know, where it's made, you know, there's a lot of New Zealand made and our products um, are, are made overseas, so they will not be as expensive as a New Zealand made T-shirt. But really what, what I want to do is to make it as accessible as possible for as many people as possible mm. because I really hate when people say, oh, I wish I could support ethically made, but I just can't afford it. And I don't think that that should be a reason because I think actually, you know, the playing field should be leveled, you know, like businesses should be not externalising these these costs. So, you know, when a competitor of mine down the road can sell a T-shirt for $4, I know that someone somewhere has had to pay for that cost, whether that be the people that are making it or the environment. Um, And, of course, if people are struggling to put food on the table here, they're not going to pay $35 for a T-shirt. Um, but often those people are the people, they know hardships that people face, so they're the ones that want to support and buy products that they know haven't caused harm. And if I can reduce my price point for individual consumers uh, because we're getting bigger scale, then that would be great. Mm, I almost think of your business a little bit as like the... Um the ethical AS color. Yeah. Not yeah. that. Not that I want to call um, AS color unethical. Uh, I don't know what their supply chain. You know, I don't know what their supply chains like. You might have a better insight to that, but um, you know what I mean. Yeah, it's tricky. So yeah, they're uh, you know they can produce t-shirts for five dollars. They can sell them for five dollars. I know. I know they're one of our competitors, and a lot of people will buy from AS Colour or buy from us. Um, it's tricky. I mean, they do have a very nice looking ethical policy on their website and, you know, child labour free certification. But from what I'm aware, most of their t-shirts are made in Bangladesh. Um, and, you know, their policy says things like, we pay the legal wage, um, which you think, oh, that's great. But um, do you know what the legal wage in Bangladesh is? Can I take a can I take a stab? I'll take yeah. a stab at. Um, I'm gonna guess it's gonna be a lot lower than I think. I'm gonna say like two dollars forty an hour. Oh, do it per month. It's it's about sixty eight dollars a month. Okay, so that's that's a lot. Like even if I think about the hourly rate, that'd be like I said two dollars forty. That'd be pretty. That'd probably be pretty good. So we're talking about thirty hours in that case, you know. For, but then if you're talking about sixteen hours a day, I probably said what it would be for about you know, $68 and the hourly rate I just said would be about two days work. Yeah, and so you've got to put that into context as well because living costs are much lower there, but $68 per month is 20% of the living wage in Bangladesh. So when you look at it like that, 
Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think that's fair. Um, but you know, a lot of people have varying opinions, and you know, look at the world a whole lot differently than I do. But you know, they're also not made from organic cotton, and again, they have one line of organic um, t-shirts. But our company's built on that, you know. We don't have any conventionally made T-shirts. And, you know, we would probably make a lot more money if we didn't have a line that was cheaper and we could sell, you know, hundreds of thousands of units of them at the same price. Uh, that's a choice that we chose not to make. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that choice. I don't mind that we are not as big a company. Um, but I think consumers will become more aware and will start demanding, you know, more transparency and, you know, I, I've even noticed that over the last couple of years, people are more willing to pay $20 for a t-shirt that they know people have been paid a fair wage and um, the environment hasn't been damaged in the process. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of like what you were saying before that. The, the one thing I've kind of really kind of realized in this podcast is that it's so much more complex than one would normally think. You know, it's not as simple as, um, as you kind of mentioned, well, why doesn't everybody do organic cotton? Or, um, you know, what about the supply chain dictates X, Y, Z? Or why do we keep getting this outcome? Well, you know, let's dig into the supply chain and figure it out because, you know, these, there, there's typically a reason behind these decisions that have been made. Yeah, and, you know, you don't want to, you know, I don't want to criticise companies too much either because, you know, yeah, they've introduced an organic line, great, that's awesome. Like, companies are making positive steps and that should be really applauded. Um, I just think that we can make steps maybe a bit quicker would be nice. Um, you know, and then there's the other argument of, you know, they are providing jobs and that's definitely, definitely important. Um, I just think we can... We can provide jobs, but we can, you know, we can break that poverty, that cycle of poverty quicker if we can cover more than just the basics. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's marginal, you know. If, if, if companies just pay a little bit more, it makes such a huge difference to to the garment worker. Um, you know, and it's, it's, you know, possibly the difference between one of their kids or both of their kids being educated. You know, and that's that's a huge difference on that second child. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you, Sam, just before we wrap up, what's one big thing that that could happen in order to make it to to advance or organic farming and and consumers buying more organic products? I think for me, it's around education. So I think people people genuinely want to buy stuff that they know or believe has been made under fair conditions. But there is so much misinformation and almost too many different certifications that people don't really understand or labels or various things that it almost gets too much. And I think people just, there's too much that people go, oh, I don't know, so I'll just buy whatever. Um, so one thing I'm really trying to focus on is helping to make it more clear and educate consumers and hopefully if it's a little bit easier then people can make those more ethical decisions mm. 
It's a little bit like, did you ever see Trade Aid? A couple of years ago, they brought out in their stores um, little screens and you could go up with the product, scan it, and it would show you the story of the person or, or the types of pe- people who had created this product and it would show you the village mm-hmm. and it would yeah. show you um, what, what their lives were like because they're now using fair trade and kind of communicating that story. Yeah, I think that's super important because I think, you know, it's really hard to... Um, I guess, understand, like, the concept on such a huge scale. Like, you know, the fashion industry has, you know, X million child labourers working in it. But if you know that your product or whatever you're buying can, like, help this community or this person, it's much easier to make that decision. Mm, because it's um, tangible. It's like it, yeah. like you kind of said it, it. You could either buy the five dollar. T- if I can, I know this is vastly oversimplifying it. Um, but if you almost take it as simple as I could buy a five dollar t shirt, and that's going to be made by somebody working sixteen hours who um, who perhaps gets only earning enough money to send one of their three children to school. Or I could buy the twenty dollar t shirt, and that extra fifteen dollars isn't isn't going to make a huge difference to my life. Like $15 here or there in New Zealand is not going to make a massive difference. But what the difference that means is that instead of working 16 hours, that person can work eight-hour days, uh, only six days a week instead of seven days a week. And it means that all three of their kids can go to school. And as soon as you start putting putting that, if I can simplify it like that, um, you know, in, into the into the do I buy the $5 or do I buy the $20? Like it kind of crystallizes um, the, the decision for you. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, my key message also is just like, do you really need that T-shirt? Like, regardless of if it's a $5 T-shirt or a $15 T-shirt, like, do you need that exact T-shirt? And often the answer is no, in which case, well, if you're not buying them as often, then maybe you are more willing to spend a little bit more on that one great T-shirt. And so, you know, you, you might not actually end up spending in total numbers anymore. You've just bought less but what you have bought has made more of an impact, you know, or less of a negative impact. Um, yeah, but again, it's really oversimplifying the, the situation. I mean, in some, in some instances, it's almost you almost need some of that simplification in order to get the message across as well about um, about how we make make our decisions. But you know, I, f- I kind of feel like the real. The real interesting thing I've kind of got out of this podcast is more thinking about um, where things, like how are things made, and how did this get here, and what impact does that have on on the on the planet and people's lives? You know, uh, what what's the difference if I buy the I, I'm walking down the chickpea aisle in the supermarket in my mind right now, and I and then I also realise that there's not a chickpea aisle, but for me there, there is because I love chickpeas. But you know what's you know what would theoretically be the difference between buying the the budget one and the bodies one? Yeah. In that case, you might say there's no different, uh, no difference at all. So why am I paying an extra two dollars when it's exactly the same product or whatever? Um, yeah. But when you get into more complex products like clothing and uh, cars and manufacturing, that's when it probably starts to become uh, more of a difference and it makes an impact on people's lives. Yeah. I mean, so my phone contract came up for renewal the other week, last oh, week. Oh yeah. Um, I've had the, you know, I do have an iPhone, which I is a purchase I probably, sh- you know, regret making. Um, this is, yeah, a couple of years ago. Um, and it came up for a new one. They said, oh, come into the store. You can have a new phone. I was like, oh, my phone's great. There's nothing wrong with my phone. Why would I need a new one? What number are you on? <laughs> phone number. 
Uh, it, no, I'm not asking for your phone number. That'd be awkward. Um, That's what I was trying to figure out. No, no, no. Well, iPhone, iPhone. Oh, six, I think. What's that? Oh, yeah. No, it's got a, yeah, it got the little touch button. Did that, was that in the six? Yeah, I think that was in the six. They came out in 5S. But I was just talking to the guy on the phone and he couldn't understand why I didn't want to, he was like, it won't cost you anything. And I was like, yeah, but you know if I give this phone like what's going to happen to it and I'm just getting a new phone for the sake of a new phone like it doesn't it doesn't make any sense um, and so I'm just keeping this phone um, until it breaks um, at which point I'll probably buy there's a new phone that's come out recently called the Fairphone uh, which is a fully modular and made under fair conditions um, phone that they've released but yeah so it's just stuff like that and like we're constantly pushed to upgrade things or get a new one just because that's like the done thing but yeah like why, why would I get another phone and the other thing that I love about about your business Sam is that you've made your kind of key differentiator between yourself and your competitors and if I can call it the fashion business um it is values at, at, at the end of it and how and the way you want to operate the business rather than saying you know oh okay we're going to make the the best t-shirt that, that ever lived it's like no we're going to make it differently and it's going to be within our set of values for how we want to purchase and how we want to live and it's kind of saying that's going to be our competitive advantage whereas 20 years ago nobody would have ever have made their business or, or based their value proposition based on that it's such an interesting change in how we do business now a lot of people though say that our t-shirts are some of the best just going to put that out there as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be surprised if you didn't say that. I'm sure every business owner says that. <laughs> yeah, they are, you know, thick, organic cotton. It does feel different. You, you can notice it. Um, yeah, but exactly. Like that we didn't set out to do that. That's kind of like a byproduct and also just the reality of business. The, the product still has to be good, right? Like, mm-hmm. No, and you know some of our very early lines were not good, um, but we made them in such small quantities that it didn't matter. Um, but people, people, I guess buy buy into our business because of all the values. But they're not going to come back and buy a second or third or fourth time if the product's average. So both those things do go hand in hand, um, and it's important for us to stand by our products and be proud of them as well. Um, yeah, fantastic, Sam. You know there are a lot of. Um Young, young people listening to this podcast, some, some of them are interested in entrepreneurship, some of, some of them might be students who are, who are looking to get into it, or just working in corporates. Is there, is there any one last thing you want to leave with them? Uh, like advice? Oh, yeah. Um, so I can't claim this advice that got told to me, but it's served me well, and I constantly tell it to other people, is to just ask people to go out for a coffee with you um, for like $4, you get half an hour of someone's time, and you'll be amazed by how much stuff you'll learn from a 20 or 30 minute coffee conversation and who else they'll connect you in with or um, opportunities that you might get um, get from that. You could probably got to get people emailing you now asking you out for coffee all the time. Nah, nah. I, I do do quite a few coffees each week and, you know, half of them are people that I've reached out to that I, I want to learn something from and half of them now are, you know, people that have reached out to me. But, you know, I actually learn quite a bit from those coffees, even the ones people that have approached me and, you know, that's actually um, how, you know, just looking at our office now, how some of our, you know, it's how we got our marketing person. So, Fantastic. you know. Yeah. Awesome. So we should all be going out for more coffees. Yes. Yeah. Sam Ray <laughs> Jones from Little Yellow Bird, thank you for your time. 
You're welcome. Thanks. The New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast, hosted by Ed McKnight and brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand.